Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today we are honored to have as our guest, Judge Jeremy Fogel, retired United States District Court judge. Judge Fogel was on the United States District Court for 20 years, serving in the Northern District of California, and also for the period from 2011 to 2018, he was the director of the Federal Judicial Center, uh, the organ of the uh, judiciary in the United States that deals with education research and has dealt with all the issues of judicial administration that we will talk about. He is now director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute, the executive director of the Berkeley Judicial Institute, located at Cal Berkeley and at its law school, dealing with the same set of issues. And at a time when we've all come to realize how critical judicial administration, not just in calendaring, but in all administration, is to achieving justice, the work that Judge Fogel is now doing is critical to everything that we'll be dealing with. Judge Fogel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. You know, we're at a time where what's happened in the pandemic has focused on so many issues that we dealt with in the past. I, I know someone said this may not have been the challenge we wanted, but it's the challenge we've got. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to start with a specific example of that before I turn to the broader issue, because I think it focuses how much the pandemic has, has changed our perspective on the issues. Uh, as you know, longstanding opposi opposition to cameras in the courtroom of any kind, but because the pandemic uh, denied access, public access to the federal courts that, that were open and being held, the administrative office of the courts in, in March and April issued emergency rules permitting Zoom proceedings done in district courts to be viewed publicly. And uh, in fact, they've been widely viewed. Uh, Judge Donato of the Northern District, with whom you were on a, a Daily Journal podcast as well, talked about having one case where 700 people were watching. A major difference in public access to courts, but it was done, as I understand it, as an administrative rule, an emergency administrative rule. And the assumption is uh, when the pandemic is deemed over, it may long, no longer be in effect. Do you think there should be continued access on Zoom to all the U.S. district court proceedings in the country? I, I do. Um, and I think we have um, uh, a body of data now that we simply didn't have and couldn't even imagine that we would have had back in in, in March and April. You know, um, I remember that very well. And I remember when those orders uh, came out from the administrative office. And I think the expectation was we'd be looking at about a two or three month period, and then everything would go back to normal. Um, and I remember saying at the time and even uh, writing to various people and saying, you know, you have an opportunity here to learn something about um, what the effect of broadcasting court proceedings would be. There had been a study done. In fact, it was done at the Federal Judicial Center when I was there, but it was a pretty limited study. Um, there were real serious constraints put on it by the Judicial Conference. And so uh, it didn't really answer the question as to whether um, the, the benefits outweigh the, the detriments of having uh, real-time coverage. And all of a sudden, the judiciary gets put into this position where it has to do it in order to provide constitutional access. And, and I remember saying at the time, and I think uh, I feel even more strongly now, we have 
nearly a year of data uh, where literally hundreds of proceedings have been uh, broadcast uh, using Zoom. And we can, uh, can and should study that to see what's been good about that and what hasn't been good about it. I have always felt that um, public access is really important and that um, proper use of video uh, serves that interest. It doesn't mean that you do it without regard to fairness or, or the circumstances of a particular case, particularly if you're talking about criminal cases. Um, but uh, the idea that you don't do it at all has never made me comfortable. In fact, uh, before I became a federal judge, I was a judge in the uh, state system in California. And as California lawyers know, the and judges, that the uh, default's exactly the other way. The presumption is that things will be uh, uh, open for video uh, presentation, and then you have to show a reason why they shouldn't be. And and I really think uh, that the federal courts would do well to look at the experience of the last year and and honestly evaluate whether it's been as bad as they feared. Certainly for, um, and I don't think it has to be a one-size-fits-all, there certainly are proceedings where uh, the worries people have about um, you know, jury bias or sensationalism, or, you know, you always bring up Sam Shepard or OJ Simpson or things like that, that uh, situations where things certainly did get out of hand. And those are often cited as reasons why you shouldn't have cameras in the courtroom. And, and I think for things like uh, status conferences, case management conferences, uh, discovery hearings, things like that, where there's no risk of, of that kind of um, situation uh, evolving, we shouldn't be uh, precluded from using technology to make those proceedings less expensive and more accessible. When, when you get to trials, um, sure. I mean, I think the parties and the trial judge and the lawyers and everybody who's involved in the case needs to have a thoughtful discussion about what the effect of that would be. And so uh, I think uh, there should be flexibility. And I think uh, a judge should be able to say, you know, not in this case, and it's just too, too touchy, it's too sensitive, but to, but to, now it's illegal. You, you can't do it at all. And, and I think that's not a good situation. And uh, Congress would have to extend uh, the emergency um, authority that it granted in the CARES Act. They would have to actually legislate uh, in order to do that. And I, I really don't know how assertive the federal judiciary is going to be in that regard, but uh, my sense of it, and I've talked to a lot of judges and a lot of lawyers over the last year, uh, and then just looking at it as a as a public um, public good question, uh, I, I think I, I think there really ought to be the ability, at least, uh, to to televise uh, federal court proceedings using a platform like Zoom. Well, in Zoom also, one of the great criticism has always been because of the complexity of bringing actual cameras into the courtroom with the cabling and who would run the cameras and the, and the operators and everything. But the Zoom technology, which we all use on a regular basis, certainly has taken care of a lot of those physical objections to, to bringing cameras in. Oh, that's right. And, and you know, you're not even aware that the, the cameras are there most of the time. Um, and... I think that's that is that is one of the objections that was raised. I mean, the one that that I think has to be dealt with, and one that proponents of greater access and 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 uh, using technology for greater access need to deal with, is there there are issues of procedural justice that come up in in given cases, and so there has to be flexibility uh, in whatever you do uh, to uh, 
think about those things and come up with with workable um, orders, limitations, what ha- what have you. But I think where we have been before the pandemic, which was you couldn't do it at all, uh, that uh, I don't think is sustainable. And I really hope that um, we've learned something. Uh, you know, you phrased that it's it's not not the uh, disruption we or not the problem we wanted but it's the problem we have i mean it was phrased uh, i i thought in an even better way by by uh, uh one of the national leaders in this who's the chief judge mccormick in, in michigan and she said uh, uh it's not the it's not the disruption that we wanted but it's the disruption that we needed and i think the emphasis was on on the fact that it was something that the courts really needed they, need, they needed to be shaken up uh, you know, and don't just do things this way because you've always done them that way, and that's what you're comfortable with. But but really look at at how um, how things could be done differently, and how things could be done better. And I think that's the opportunity that that we we've gotten from the pandemic. And given your your role, as I mentioned, in uh, being head of the Judicial Center and now the Berkeley Judicial Institute, you know, you bring a, a real perspective in terms of someone who has recommended change in the past, who's dealt with issues in the past. The, the proponents of this, I can spend another couple of minutes on it. The proponents of this basically say, look, making all the trials, and, and there are different levels here. Let's just talk about the level only of public access to what is otherwise going on, not of witnesses appearing virtually or anything like that, but just having the public able to see the courtroom. Uh, that goes back to the oldest traditions of American law. I mean, trials were a major source of public interest uh, in the early history of the United States, uh, the East Coast and the Midwest. Uh, for anyone who doubts that, Flo- uh, Floyd Abrams has written a wonderful book on Abraham Lincoln's last trial. Right. Not Floyd, Dan, I'm sorry, uh, Dan Abrams, Floyd Abrams, uh, yeah. written a wonderful book on, on Abraham Lincoln's last trial. And you can sense the, the public interest in what it means. So the proponents say, look, if all we're talking about, trials that would otherwise be public if people took the expense and trouble to go to the courtroom, that they couldn't be barred from the courtroom, as long as it's something that you couldn't bar anyone from the courtroom physically, why should you not permit them to be present virtually? Yeah, well, I, I think that's that's a hard argument to to refute, really. I mean, I, I think people have fears about what could happen. I mean, and there certainly are situations or witness security issues. I mean, you know, we're not dealing directly with that. But I mean, just from the standpoint of, of access, it's a hard um hard thing to beat down. I mean, we, and, you know, it's at the same time, a lot of people say, well, people don't understand the courts. They don't understand the separation of powers. They don't understand what the role of a judge is. And we, we have to be fearful about judicial independence. And one of the best uh, remedies for that is for people to see what actually goes on in a courtroom. Uh, It's a lot of, it's pretty boring, honestly, but I mean, it's, it's like you, you see that, that there is a process, that there are roles that people play in the process. It isn't just, you know, some judge putting on a robe and sticking their finger in the wind and deciding how they're going to decide a case. I mean, there's there's a process, and it's a very old process, and it's a very venerable process, and in some ways, it's, it's a very elegant process. And, and so the more people can see that, um, I think the better it is for the judiciary. Uh, you know, the, 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 the problem is that you can always – think of an instance where it went, it went awry, you know, where, where, you know, Shepard, of course, we went to the Supreme court. So you have, you have Supreme court law talking about 
uh, trial being conducted in a, in a, in a prejudicial manner in you know, too much media that was before TV. And then everybody brings up uh, OJ as a situation, but you know, you can look at those as cases where um, things got out of hand, not because of the publicity and not because of the access, but because of the way that the trial was managed. And, you know, it's, it's kind of always the fear about, well, you know, people are going to posture, they're going to play to the cameras, they're going to, you know, they're going to do something. And, and judges in states where that, where there's, there's been this kind of access for a long time, that's just not what they report. You know, that once, once in a while, you know, you'll have a situation where that's starting to happen. And it's a place where the trial judge needs to take control of it and say, you know, we can't have that. We have to maintain a, a fair and dignified atmosphere. Uh, we have Canada, you know, just to our, our north, you know, that, that everything is televised, including the uh, arguments in the Supreme Court, you know, and, and the, the world hasn't come to an end. So it, it's, it's, I mean, I think there's just more nuance that needs to be uh, introduced into the discussion that has been there uh, up till now. Yeah, you know, and in, 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 uh, you mentioned Canada and the United Kingdom, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom uh, televises all its arguments. It's a remarkable court. And the arguments involving the legality of issues surrounding Brexit that were argued a couple of years ago had eight and 10 million people. Oh, yeah. Uh, tuning in to listen to those uh, to listen to those arguments. Yeah. And you're right. And, and you know, those arguments. The, the, the language that's used, I mean, it's English, but it's a very, it's a very uh, uh, professional, uh, uh, specialized language that's used in, in, in the UK courts, and, and people still were interested. I mean, they, they, they got to see the, they got to see the process, you know, they got to see the, the, the sort of the dignity of the, of the judicial branch and the judicial function. So I think it's just a mistake for people not to be able to see it. And this is part you know, it was somewhat larger discussion about access to information about courts. I mean, there's a huge amount that's freely available. Uh, you know, the, a lot of people don't know the extensive law library of Congress, part of the library of Congress and, and the materials that are there, what can be done in Google Scholar, the amount of things that can be done for free. Uh, the one thing that there's still a cost for in terms of access is the cost of PACER. Yeah, uh, the access of the public to PACER. And I know there are now serious issues in Congress and in discussion about whether PACER should be made cost free so the public can gain access to court records in that way. Is that something that that you'd agree with? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think from a policy perspective that there's much defense for PACER having fees. Uh, I, I think, you know, this is public information as information about uh, about the public business. And unless there's a, a uh, uh, you know, trade secret or something like that, that's specifically entitled to protection, I think, uh, I think PACER should be accessible. I can't, I obviously can't speak for the people who run the federal courts these days, but I think most people would agree that kind of at the abstract level that it, PACER ought to be free. The problem is that, um, that it is a source of revenue for the courts. And in, up until now, Congress has not been uh, willing to replace that revenue. So you kind of get into a, a box where to make PACER free would, would essentially be a budget cut for the, for the federal courts, and it puts them in a really difficult position. And I think the solution to the problem, and it's one I've actually gotten engaged with somewhat with, with the congressional committee that has jurisdiction, is figuring out a way to do it that, that meets the interests on both sides. So you don't want to require the federal courts to 
uh, just eat a budget cut without any compensation, without any offsets. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's very important that PACE are not uh, not have a fee. So I think it's a matter of how you get to yes there. I think there's probably a, a, a way to mediate a solution. Uh, we're not there yet, but I, I'm actually somewhat optimistic that the, um, at least in, in the current Congress, that there's a shot at uh, getting something done. I think there was a, a unfortunate, um, and, and I'm not making this as a partisan comment, I'm just making it as an observer. I think there was an unfortunate um, breakdown in the relationship between um, particularly the House Committee and and the judiciary for a, a while. And uh, I, I think that relationship is better now. It's more cooperative. And I think somewhere in that process, there may be a way to solve the PACER problem. But but just as a, a practical matter, I, I really, I, I just, I don't think there should be a fee for PACER. Yeah, no, it's, um, you know, all of us who, who follow the uh, budgetary and funding battles over the uh, judiciary always are agonized by the fact that uh, when you look at the overall budget of governments, it's basically a rounding error in terms right. of the amount that's allocated to this essential function of, of providing justice. That's a whole separate issue, but every time the issue is mentioned, it just uh, causes me at least great anger that uh, that what is a minor part of the budget, but so critical to the functioning of the society. Absolutely, and and, and you could, this is, this is a problem you could solve by literally adding the additional money to the budget to offset the loss of the pacer fees um you know and and it's not it would still be a rounding error and 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 it's just um it's unfortunate that it hasn't happened but people people get dug in you know it's there are power struggles there are turf wars all of those things that you know people have in the way of stereotypes about interbranch relations i mean they're true uh, to, there's a reason for those stereotypes and and you know the only way to get past them is for relationships to develop that are that are better you know and i think people have to be disposed to do that uh you know i mean it's probably a little bit of inside baseball but i think there was a period where where the house judiciary committee was threatening to uh, impose an inspector general on the judiciary uh, they were going to create an inspector general for the judiciary which i, I think probably would have been held unconstitutional right out of the box because Congress has no ability to supervise the internal affairs of the judiciary. But, but those kinds of things were, were being threatened. And in, in, in an atmosphere like that, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty toxic, right? I mean, and, and it's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't breed a lot of trust. But you know, these, these issues may be connected. It may be that giving people more access to the court proceedings will build a constituency that will help the political issues around making PACER free because people will be watching and they will say, you know, I want to listen to these cases, but I also like to see the documents in the cases. Yeah. So it may be that these issues, both of which revolve around democratization, democratic access, judicial system, they may get connected and, 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 and be helpful to each other here. I think so. And I, I think, and I think, as I said earlier, I think in addition to that, I think the judiciary has got a good story to tell. I think, especially, you know, it's not uniformly wonderful everywhere. I mean, there are places where there's been problems with corruption and with poor performance and, you know, lack of discipline and, you know, and all, all the horror stories you can, you can read about. But I think the federal judiciary in particular has a really good story to tell. I mean, people have uh, a tremendous amount of integrity and, uh, you know, it's, it, they, they, 
I would say the vast majority of federal judges get there on merit. Uh, yes, it helps if you know somebody. Yes, it helps if you're part of the right political party. But the 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 um, the, the quality of the federal judiciary, and I know this because I taught all the baby judges, you know, and I saw them coming. And I I I think it's really quite a, a high level organization. And so, why hide that? I mean, that's something that that people ought to be able to 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 see and be proud of. And also, in terms of education, this could now be done in terms of Zoom into classrooms, into high schools and colleges, become a real education in terms of how the judiciary and the government functions. It's a very important discussion. We've been talking at the outset about access to the courts through Zoom and through other ways. We will move on to other issues of judicial administration. But first, let's take a break. Those of you listening to this podcast can obtain MCLA credit for one hour through the Daily Journal. And we'll now take a short break for you to hear how that MCLA credit can be obtained. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com slash MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit. With a constant flow of information about the COVID-19 pandemic, it's become hard to keep up. That's why we've put all our coronavirus-related content into one place. Now you can find COVID appellate cases, news articles, guest columns, and episodes of The Weekly Brief on our new page. Stay up to date by visiting dailyjournal.com slash COVID. We're now back from the break, and we've been talking about one one discrete issue, which is access through Zoom to courts. But of course, the pandemic and going back to the to the perceptive and accurate quotation from Michigan about the disruption we needed, uh, the pandemic has now posed enormous challenges uh, to how uh, the judiciary is functioning. Let's talk about the bit, one of the big ones, the, the simple calendaring challenges. There always were backlogs, but whether things return to absolute normal and suddenly everyone can go to court and there are no further restrictions or whether there's some modification because, uh, because the virus continues at some stage that requires modification, dealing with this backlog is going to be maybe the major, not just a major, but the major challenge of judicial administration. What kind of things can be done in, in this new environment to help that? Yeah, well, I think I think that's the untold story. I mean, we, we talked about a little bit in the, the, the webinar we did for the Daily Journal um, a week or so ago. Um, so much focus has been on dealing with the emergency. You know, we, we've got to get through the emergency. We've got to uh, handle the situation where course, courthouses are closed or the access to courthouses has been uh, slowed to a trickle and you have all this work that needs to get done. You have criminal cases where people are in custody, things like that. So there's been a lot of focus on that and properly so. And and what has resulted from that, as you point out, is that there's a very large backlog of cases, uh, civil trials and and criminal trials where either the defendant wasn't in custody or there was a time waiver. And and those um, cases are going to have to get through the system. So I've been thinking about how you could use some of the 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 
the knowledge we have about judicial administration to, d- to deal with this. First thing, of course, you have to do is you have to recognize that you have the problem. And I think it's one of those things that courts, some, some courts just aren't dealing with because they just don't have the space to deal with it. They're going to have to start dealing with it as the vaccines come online and as you start to have more uh, prospect of, of having some form of normal life, then you have to think, well, what are we going to do with all those backlogs? And, you know, I, I was thinking about when I became a federal judge, and this was part of the, the hazing ritual of every new federal judge in our district. I, would, I, I, I was sworn in and I went into my chambers and I put my staff together and then I was handed 325 cases. And, uh, and in, in, at that time, I think it's less, it's less that way now. But, but at that time, the, the tradition was you, you kind of got j- cases other judges didn't want. You got cases that were problematic. Uh, you know, I, I, an old, I will not name the judge, but he was a senior colleague of mine who came down one day with a can of dog food and said, take good care of my cases. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, um, so, you know, the bottom line was I had, I had all these cases and I had to figure out what to do with them. And I knew that in every one of those cases, there was, there was, uh, there were parties who had been with judge X and now they were with me and they suffered a delay as a result of that. And I was not going to be able to resolve that many cases in any short period of time. And I got some very good advice, which was the first thing you ought to do is you ought to triage all of those cases. You ought to look at the inventory and you ought to, uh, if you can get the parties into court and now you could do this with zoom back back then people actually had to come in get get the people into court and say well what's going on here you know so so what i did is i set a status conference in every one of my cases uh, except for the in custody prisoner cases i couldn't do that but i mean i set for all of the other cases where the parties were able to engage i i set a, a status conference and um i had you know 10 a day or whatever for several weeks and the amazing thing was about 20% of the cases went away just because I set the status conference. My dismissal would come in or, you know, there would be some not a notification. Well, this case isn't active anymore. Or we've settled it or, you know, we aren't pursuing it. And then, and then the rest of them, uh, when they would come in, turned out that there were things that hadn't been done to them that I could do to them that would make them go away. They, they needed a referral to mediation or they, they, they needed a motion to be decided, or they needed, you know, some action to take place that hadn't taken place because of the, the transition. And so the num, I, I really did not end up trying very many of those cases. Um, it, it, I had some summary judgment motions I had to decide, but, but by and large, that work went away pretty fast simply by putting it in this triage process by getting hands on the case. And I, I was thinking about, well, what, what is a, an urban court going to do where you've got hundreds of backlog cases? You, you could develop a... Uh, a that was, that was yeah. Pardon yeah. me? Yeah. You said hundreds, it's thousands. Thousands, thousands. right. Yeah, well, okay. But you, you, you put together a strike team to, to um, go through the cases and say, well, you know, when, what's the last thing that took place in this case? And, and you know, we, we need to contact counsel and, and we need to see what's what's going on now, you know, and maybe, maybe it's, it's a year later. Uh, I, I bet you would lose a like percentage, maybe even more of cases that, that are no longer 
going forward. Uh, there may be uh, things you can do in the area of settlement now that you couldn't do then because the incentives have changed for people with the passage of time. Um, I remember we even did this when I was on the Superior Court. We, we had uh, the criminal team did a purge of, of criminal cases that had been backlogged. And I don't even remember what the the reason for the backlog was, but there was a big, big backlog of criminal cases. And and they just developed a team of judges who were very good at resolving cases, and and they went in and 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 got the numbers down substantially. So I think you 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 apply some different approaches instead of just doing things the way you've always done them. Uh, you develop a, a group of people who have those skills and who don't mind getting their hands dirty, and you get in and try to uh, try to case manage the cases uh, as as rapidly as you can. Um, is that going to make it all go away? No. But is that, is that going to shrink the numbers? I, I am certain that it will shrink the numbers. Um, yeah, I just want to, yeah. I just want to make a comment because I think even many lawyers don't appreciate the workload that speaking specifically about us district court judges carry. I know in the central district of California with, I'm most familiar with most say the the average, the, the civil caseload is over 500 cases. If the court is short, may go up to six or 700 yeah. plus criminal plus immigration. A, a judge who was on the court for many years told me after she left the court that she had hadn't taken a single day off, not a Sunday or anything in all the years she'd been on the court. I just don't think there's sufficient appreciation for the kind of workload and, and, and pressure uh, that U.S. District Court trial judges uh, work under, give, given the calendaring pressures. But the other thing is what you've mentioned really goes to case management. It, it's a separate function. Case management is a separate function. And you did it in your court, but we usually work on the assumption that each judge controls his or her own courtroom. So another judge who'd come in with the same group of cases put on the desk uh, might have just gone through them in the ordinary way. Uh, and yet we have strong judicial independence. Each judge rules that courtroom. How do we bring better case management skills and, and, and results uh, into the existing courtrooms uh, uh, to, uh, and, and effectively uh, without interfering with judicial independence? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And and it's it's one that has vexed me since well before the pandemic. Um, I, I remember, because I, I think it's evident from my comments, I, I believe in active case management. I think it actually uh, works in the interests of, of the parties. Um, saves them money, saves them time, uh, gets gets results uh, sooner. I, I don't think it should be um, um, oppressive. I don't think judges should threaten people or anything like that to get them to settle their cases. I think that's totally wrong. But I think there is a way that you, you engage with people and you get them to say, well, what do you actually disagree about? You know, what what do you need decided? What, what is the sticking point in getting this case resolved? And um, I think some judges are just reluctant to do that. I mean, some of them are reluctant to do it because they just believe, you know, they've grown up with the idea that, you know, the judge should just stay out of the way and let, let lawyers put their cases on, you know. And, and there are others who feel like if they're putting their thumbs on the scale and they're, 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 they're not letting the process uh, play itself out, you know, not letting the jury decide a jury issue, that kind of thing. And then, and then I think there's also just – with some people, there's just a, a lack of comfort 
with with playing that role of 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 mediator or problem solver. You know, that's just not what you were trained to do. You're more comfortable uh, deciding legal issues and analyzing briefs and things like that. So you have all kinds of people. Uh, I think. And I thought when I was designing curriculum at the FJC that it's important that judges at least have the tool in their toolbox, that that every judge is going to have his or her own philosophy and, and way of doing things. And I do think it's important that we have differences. I don't think everybody should be the same. But I think that there are um, it's, it's a tool that can be very, very helpful and, and can save a, a lot of time and it can really... Uh, in, in the end, be much more beneficial for the people who are coming to court if you if you take the time and you engage with them. And so it's a differential process. I think a really useful way of doing case management is to is to get together with with counsel or if the parties are self-represented, even with with the parties and just say, how do you want this to go? You know, I mean, this is should we be putting this on a trial track or should we be trying to get this case ready for mediation? Or is there a, a motion that if we could get that motion decided, uh, we could probably resolve the case at that point. I mean, just just to have that kind of dialogue. And so so I think getting those skills taught to judges so they can deploy them in in ways that they choose, I think is 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 a very positive thing. Now, back to the pandemic, I think if we don't do that, the the, the backlog is going to crush us. Uh, I, I think there's just there's just too many cases that are pending now. Uh, I mean, it's, it's going to take years to get them all through the through the system, and and you have to have some way of of dealing with them um, other than just making people wait for three, four, or five years. You, you you need to to say, okay, here's an opportunity. This is a unique set of circumstances. You didn't ask for this. Nobody asked for this. But here we are. Uh, you know, if we put your case on the trial calendar, uh, you know, it, it it'll be you know, 24 months until you get your trial heard because of all the other cases that are ahead of you. If, if we can figure out some other way to get your case um, resolved in a way where you feel like you've been heard and you've had a chance to make the points you wanted to make, why don't we try to do that? And, and I think that's going to take face time with a judicial officer. Yeah, I think there's one thing you said. You talked about many things in this possibility of mediation, but you mentioned the motion that might have helped to resolve things. You know, in all the cases that I handled over decades, there were usually only there were one or two critical legal issues and one or two factual issues. Certainly, if not to resolution uh, by judgment, to resolution by settlement. And if you could get those resolved early. Uh, you really move it along. And there's, I can't tell you, and every trial lawyer I think has had the same experience. There's an issue that everyone knows is critical, but because of the current procedures, it goes through full discovery, right. through discovery, full discovery, motions for summary judgment. And 18 months later, you're arguing a motion for summary judgment on the same issue you could have heard 90 days after the case was filed, that if it didn't end it, would have led to its settlement. So how do you, there are techniques that we know and many district court judges use them and use them very effectively. Uh, is there, I guess the difficult question given judicial independence, is there a role for a case management team or for case managers, not just to leave it to the independence of each judge, but is there a role for it in this crisis? This may be yeah. one of the results of the disruption we need. Is there a role for a case management team 
uh, to look at the cases and work as case managers uh, to help set up procedures that would move them over. Yeah, well, I think that's what I'm advocating. I think I think you could justify it not as a permanent change in culture, but as something that's needed in the immediate uh, the immediate situation, which would justify a departure from the way things have ordinarily been done. Uh, you know, in in the state court and state courts. Uh, uh, the superior courts around California are, are different in this respect, but Santa Clara, where I was, we had uh, a master calendar system. So um, I was a team leader for most of the last seven years. I was a superior court judge. And what the team leader did essentially was, was look at this inventory. I had about 3000 cases I was responsible for and, and go through exactly the type of triage that you're talking about where okay, what do we need to do with this case? What do we need to do with that case? And, you know, a lot of the, the they're called Rule 16 conferences in federal court, case management conferences in state court, but but the, you know, at the at the CMCs, what what I often would do is say, is there a motion, which if, if we could get this motion decided, we could we could dispose of the case, you know, and, and it might be something like, is there insurance coverage, you know, or, you know, is there, you know, is the statute of limitations run, you know, or is, it, those kinds of things that, that you could identify and, and, and resolve. And the judges who were chosen to be team leaders were all people who had that bent in the first place. So it was playing to the strengths of the, of the people. There were judges who just wanted to try cases. Well, they were the people who tried the cases that we could not solve through the, through the triage process and actually worked really well. Cause you, you, uh, there, there is a, clearly a place in a civil law system for judges who are just really good trial judges. But I think, you know, there's been the, the perhaps in the federal system, a bit of an overemphasis in my judgment on those skills and to the detriment of developing case management skills or assuming that the case management is going to be done by magistrate judges in, in districts where magistrate judges have real responsibility, um, you know, that they end up being, being, getting the cases delegated to them for that kind of thing. But I think, you know, I think having, having the, the assigned uh, article three judge have some um, set of case management skills is, is, as I say, it's, it's a really good tool to have in your toolbox. It's very interesting because different, uh, different districts, different courts in different areas uh, have had uh, striking differences and successes and some problems. I mean, the Northern District of California, Santa Clara and the Silicon Valley, perhaps because of its comfort with technology and other forms of management has always been way ahead here they, with, with, model, uh, with the model forms and the model orders and its forms. The Eastern District of Texas, of course, uh, when it established its rocket docket for patent cases, uh, right. people want to go there for various reasons, but the rocket docket certainly showed something. And we have these remarkable instances in the International Trade Commission where very complicated patent issues on, on excluding materials from the United States around the tightest timeline must be done in a matter of three or four months and everyone everyone gets them done. Get so them done. We do have examples within the dispute resolution system of the federal courts of case management making a huge difference uh, in, 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 in how fast things are resolved. Yeah, it's it's true, but I mean, some of it's just cultural. I mean, some of it is you know, you, you, if you grow up, uh, you know, I thought about this a lot. I mean, now that I'm retired from the active judiciary, and I was thinking back to my my early days in the, you know, as a lawyer, and and the um, and discovery, right? I mean, discovery took place 
either you, you, you would send something by mail or you would go to somebody's office or you would exchange stuff in the courthouse. And, and it might be like, you know, a hundred pages of something, if that, and, and, you know, that was it, right? I mean, that was discovery, you know, and you, and you made small talk when you did it and you got to know your opposing counsel and all that, you know, and now you've got in a, in a, in a basic employment case, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of documents, you know, in, in an e-file someplace and, and people sending off, you know, nasty letters to each other, you know, at two o'clock in the morning. And, and it's just, um, it's just really different. So, you know, I think this idea of the, um, the trial just kind of bubbling up from the, from the bottom, I mean, it, 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 it's not completely antiquated, but it's certainly not the size that ought to fit most civil litigation. I mean, it's, 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 it's got an important place. And I, I've often been accused of, of, of not appreciating how important trials are. I think trials are really important. I think the availability of trials is extremely important. But I also think that a lot of cases, you assume that a lot of cases are on a trial track that really aren't, that if you actually go through the, the, the process of, of looking at them and looking at their constituent parts and their dynamics, that, that there really aren't that many cases that, uh, where, where that's really the optimal outcome. Yeah, no, I think that there obviously are important cases, cases that should be tried, cases that become benchmarks. Uh, but right now, they're not identified that way. It's a kind of random process, however individual cases uh, are handled. Uh, we've been talking about case management, how important it is, what's going to be happening with the backlog. Uh, let's take another break, because though this is very hot news right now, the pandemic effect on courts is one of the major, if not the major, stories in the legal system. The, da the Daily Journal covers many stories. And let's take a break and hear some of the other stories the Daily Journal is currently covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here's some of our top stories from the week of February 22nd. Court backlogs are continuing to plague the judicial system, and it seems no one truly has an answer. Technological and infrastructural disparities among California's 58 counties have exposed a rift that continues to puzzle legal experts on what can be done to alleviate the issue. State Supreme Court Chief Justice Tani Kentil Sakaui said it's becoming clear that issuing state orders may not be the answer. She has faced criticism in court of, quote, presuming superiority, end quote, and disregarding local leadership. Legislators asked members of the state's Judicial Council how they can help courts tackle civil and criminal backlogs, but the council members could not answer lawmakers' questions about how to help or how much money the deprived judiciary needs to solve the problem. Academics and retired judges debated possible changes to the U.S. Supreme Court that could change the court's makeup and traditions. With the addition of Justice Amy Coney Barrett just days before the November presidential election, many Democrats have said they fear the impact of a conservative-dominated Supreme Court. Berkeley School of Law Dean Erwin Chemerinsky advocated adding justices to the court, but the plan seems unlikely to make progress, with President Joe Biden mum on supporting the idea and Democrats needing to change filibuster rules to make it happen. Berkeley law professor Orrin Kerr instead proposed limiting justices to 18-year terms. If a justice were to retire or die before the end of that term, Kerr says the Senate leader of the party of the president who nominated that justice should choose someone to fill the seat for the remainder of the term. 
Retired D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals Justice Janice Rogers-Brown, known for her conservative judicial views, instead proposed justices have a mandatory retirement age, which she said would end speculation over judges' health and frame the Supreme Court as a, quote, capstone of a career. With some elements of the judicial system returning to pre-pandemic operations, it has some wondering if streaming court cases should continue. It's been one of the biggest technological changes to the judiciary, but some say it's perhaps a necessary push to bring the courts into the modern world by making them more accessible, transparent, and efficient. Northern District Judge James Donato said he sees enthusiasm for the remote proceedings. Orange County Judge Kirk Nakamura said one bright side to the pandemic is the necessity of virtual appearances and how the bar has accepted these procedures. While there's currently no legislation or enacted plan in place to extend the exceptions that have allowed district courts to livestream cases, there have been at least three bills put forward to address the issue. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back from our break, and, and we've talked about uh, access to courts, court information, about democratization, about case management. Uh, you are now executive director of the Berkeley Judicial Center. Uh, I think it's just phenomenal that, that UC Berkeley and, and the law school uh, has stepped up to do this and, and to bring you in. I mean, it's, it's, of course, it's typical of everything that Erwin Chemerinsky does yeah. in law school to, to have done this. But it really puts you in this unique position. You've got all the experience of the Federal Judicial Center in dealing with these issues, with the authority though there's no formal power to order things as director of the judicial center with the authority of being within the system and the resources uh, to have your recommendations carry great weight. And now you're in a position to, to deal with recommendations uh, free of some constraints that, that, that being in, in the public position might have placed on you. What are your goals for the Berkeley Judicial Center? What that was a very nice way of framing it because I think you, you, you have, captured what attracted me to this in the first place. And I have to say, I mean, I concur 100% with what you said about Dean Chemerinsky. I mean, it, it, this whole center grew out of a relationship that he and I have had for a number of years. And I think we just both saw this as an opportunity to pursue values that we both care about a lot. And um, being, being director of the FJC was just such a blessing. It was such a, a wonderful seven years. And I felt for all the reasons you mentioned, just being in that position. And, and I got to travel all over the country and I got to know judges in every circuit and across the political spectrum and just uh, got to go places I'd never been before. I mean, there, there was- Excuse me for interrupting you. I want people to understand because a lot of people, they just know the courts, what the Federal Judicial Center means. The appointment of director is made by the Chief Justice of the United States. It is the group that advises the, the Federal Judicial Council on major judicial policies. And so it's not, you talked about the personal experiences you've had, but in terms of the respect that you had to have had to be appointed by the Chief Justice in terms of the authority uh, that you brought, uh, that this position, uh, again, people hear it and they're not quite sure what it is. This position, having been uh, director of the Federal Judicial Center, is a major, major position well, it, in the United States uh, Judiciary. Very, very humbling when I got the call from the chief, and it was uh, certainly a, a, um, a privilege to get to know him and get to know other people in, in the leadership. It was you know, it was just, it was remarkable and, and something I'll, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. It's, it's true that there were things that um, 
I couldn't do or that would have been a little bit edgy to do in that role simply because of the political reality. And we, we talked about one of them earlier, you know, about, about Pacer. And when we talked about cameras in the courtroom and, you know, I was not in a position to uh, take positions that were contrary to uh, judicial conference policy. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's fine. I mean, no, no job is perfect, but one of the things that um, I've been able to do at Berkeley is I've been able to go a little bit beyond those constraints at the same time, having the relationships I have, and they, they certainly are, are still uh, abundant in, in the federal judiciary and, uh, and even in the state judiciary from the years I was in California. So, um, it, it, it's allowed me to pursue some things that are a little bit more um, forward-looking, I suppose, um, not just kind of dealing with the day-to-day business of the judiciary, but looking at how the judiciary can can move ahead. Uh, one of the projects I've been working on uh, is uh, a study of uh, law clerk diversity uh, in the federal courts. Now, this is a, it's actually a very touchy subject. It's something that whenever the, um, uh, director administrative office goes to Congress uh, to get uh, the budget allocation every year. Uh, There are people in Congress who say, how come uh, there isn't more diversity among uh, federal law clerks? Uh, It's become, it's become a political issue. Uh, And then it butts up right against the, the, the judicial independence that you talked about before. The judges feel very protective of their uh, right to hire uh, anyone they want to be their clerks. And these are very important positions and, require a lot of the people who are hired. So it's it's not an easy subject to talk about uh, thoughtfully. And um, I've been working on a study now for a year and a half with uh, Justice Goodman Liu from the California Supreme Court. We're doing it together. And it's it's been just an incredible experience to, to sit down with the federal judges. Uh, we've been doing it with circuit judges and we've talked to uh, not quite 50. We're gonna be talking to our 50th later today actually. And uh, getting some very um, candid and, and useful insights from them about uh, how they go about what they do and where uh, diversity enters into their uh, calculus to the extent that it does, or whether they even think it should. So, you know, we're, we're really trying to look at this issue in a, in a fresh and, and different way. And and so it's the ability to use the uh, relationships that I've developed over my career and use the resources of, of Berkeley Law School and University of California and kind of meld those together. It's to kind of bridge them and do uh, work that's kind of academic and kind of practical and not quite 100% of either. You know, it's, it's a little more of, a, of a, an, an outside view of the judiciary. Um, another uh, place that I'm very interested and have done a lot of works in the last, last two and a half years is, is judges' health and well-being. Uh, judicial temperament, um, the, the stresses on judges, the things that judges have to cope with in their in their daily lives, and how it affects their performance. Um, there's some really interesting stuff there. I mean, there was a study that just came out about uh, anxiety and depression among uh, the judiciary around the country, and it's much more widespread than people have acknowledged before. Um, the attacks on judges. It's not just. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's endemic in the legal profession uh, of course. among practicing Absolutely. lawyers. I think Absolutely. the highest rate of alcoholism, 36% of practicing lawyers Absolutely. have problems with alcohol. The, the, everyone in the legal system uh, is in the system of highest pressure and, and highest uh, mental health sensitivities in terms of, and there's no reason that judges who bear this enormous burden should, should be any different. 
Well, that's exactly right. And, and, and they do. And I think it's a, it's an issue that doesn't get talked about too much because, you know, it's embarrassing to the judges and it's, it's may even have political consequences in places where, where judges are elected. And, and so you, you, you have to, again, you have to approach it with sensitivity, but I think it's very important that, um, that, that subject be explored. And so put a lot of uh, uh, eggs in that basket too, kind of looking at, looking at that. Um, and, uh, you know, I think then in sort of, in a more you know, left brain sort of way, looking also at, at ways that court reform might be uh, might be called for. Uh, just do we need more judges? Where do we need more judges? I mean, should we change the way that we we uh, handle appeals? Um, we look at this gets again it gets into more of an inside baseball thing, but the way that different circuits do on banks or don't do on banks and that type of thing, and how that contributes to the law being uneven around the country. And the- well, one additional subject, uh, and I don't know if it's on the agenda, but a lot of people are thinking about it, especially with the budgetary difficulties and the, and the, uh, the cost of, of court construction, for example, mm-hmm. is that given in an age, if we do move to more virtual uh, use of, of, of judicial time, uh, that the standard courtroom conviction of uh, uh, configuration of one large imposing courtroom per judge, especially what you see in the old New Deal courthouses, yeah. which everyone sees as as the model. Whether in fact uh, the courthouses should be redesigned designed differently, the way law firms are now redesigning space right. and the use of real property is going to be an issue here, also. I think, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, in, in law schools, um, you know, going from lecture halls to seminar rooms, you know, as you do more interactive education. But, you know, you've again, you put your finger on, you know, what's what's been till now a third rail. You know, you, you know, of course, every judge is going to have his or her own courtroom, you know, and you the, the Article three judges get a courtroom that has a certain number of square feet and a ceiling of a certain height. And the, 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 the Article one judges get courtrooms that are a little bit smaller and the ceilings aren't as high, you know, and and and. You know, sort of, you're trying to go into that place and say you don't really need that. You know that you probably, and you've seen this with the pandemic. And again, this is another one, one of those insights the pandemic has provided. So, in 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 my old court in the Northern District of California, they've had a few live jury trials, and the way they've done it is they've used multiple Article Three judge courtrooms, and they put the jury in one of them, and they do the the, the trial in another one, and they put the the live uh, uh, witnesses and so forth and another one. So it takes a lot more space to do one trial. But the the other side of that coin is that not every judge is in their courtroom all the time. And you don't need a courtroom for every judge. You need a place where you can try cases. Um, and and so uh, I think going forward, um, that's an issue that the and, and ultimately this all comes from the administrative office. There's a design guide and there's a there's a whole set of prescriptive rules for courthouses around the country, but that's something that, that they're going to need to look at, you know, cause y- you're right. I mean, you don't need these, these big majestic courthouses anymore. No. And everyone I mentioned before the Supreme court of the United Kingdom, uh, when we can travel again, and if you're, you're fortunate enough to be able to go to London, a visit to the courtroom of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom for any lawyer should be top of the list. Mm-hmm. It's in a very unprepossessing building uh, across from the Houses of Parliament, but you wouldn't spot the building as anything unusual. Uh, the main courtroom itself, uh, there's no raised dais. There, it's like a seminar room. There are two tables facing each other, each in a half circle. Uh, counsel sit at one of the tables. 
the justices of, of the court sit at the other table, not wearing gowns, by the way. And one of the reasons they don't wear gowns, it's the old committee of the House of Lords that dealt with this and they didn't wear. But still in all, you walk into this courtroom, there's no lack of respect. In fact, in many ways, when you sit there in the audience and listen to the arguments, uh, you get a sense that the majesty of the law is, is, is within the ideas that are being exchanged uh, between counsel and the court. And it, it's a very striking thing yes. uh, to walk into that courtroom to, uh, to realize the importance of the issues that it deals with uh, and how different it is in terms of design. So there are lots of, of openings here. You also sure. spent time, I was really interested in the Berkeley Digital Institute and what you're working on, is there is a session on dealing with, with the psychology of conflict among lawyers mm -hmm. in terms of dealing with lawyers, with how, how to deal with, with the psychology of conflict and how to, how to be an adversary, but deal with it in a, in a use the word healthy kind of way. Is that something you're working with lawyers as well? Well, we, we haven't um, gone down that road yet, although it's, it's literally in the, in the pipeline. Um, there's a, um, a psychology professor at, at Berkeley uh, who, is the faculty advisor for uh, an organization called the Greater Good Science Center, which some of your listeners may know about. It's a very prominent uh, health and wellness resource. And um, he's done a lot of work with um, medical professionals and education professionals, not a lot so much with legal professionals. And so we're uh, actually working on a uh, curriculum and program for legal professionals, which we're, we're hoping to uh, launch, you know, once it's safe to have in-person meetings. Uh, so it could be as early as this fall. Um, but, you know, to kind of get people to look at that stuff, you know, like why, of course, your job is to be a, to be a strong advocate and to, and to advocate for your client's interests and to, to be assertive in ways perhaps that they can't, but it doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. It doesn't mean you have to kind of air out all of your own uh, personal stuff on top of somebody else. And so you know, how you, how you segregate those things and, and how you can be a, an assertive and effective advocate without being a jerk. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I think a lot of lawyers would like to know where that secret sauce is, but I mean, that's something that we're, we're, we're spending some, some time uh, thinking about. But that also is, is, uh, is affected by what judges respect in the courtroom. Yeah. I mean, to the extent judges signal uh, that they respect and are influenced by, uh, you know, the kind of things you're talking about, about thoughtful arguments, about entering into discussion, about not being, you know, macho in many mm -hmm. kinds of ways in the courtroom. And and what judges signal about that? Because clients, of course, want to win. Right. Uh, and when lawyers say to client, there's a code of civility, this is the way I act within the profession, you know, many clients will say, I don't care about that. I want you to win. Mm -hmm. So in the end, the lawyer has to be able to say, that dealing with it in this other way is the most effective way to meet your needs as a client. Yes, I think that's really right. I and mean, judges have to have to signal it. And you, you know, most judges, when you when you talk about it, I mean, certainly when we talk among, about it among ourselves, or even you know, when judges are on panels, I mean, they talk about civility, they talk about uh, incivility, and they talk about how much they don't like incivility. But but it's still sort of a matter of um, how you act, you know, it's what you do when you're, uh, when you, when you're presented with it. And uh, I think there's a lot to figure out there. I mean, you have to 
the judges have to figure out how not to be triggered by incivility and, and how, think about how to how to respond to it in ways that have a chance of being uh, being successful. And um, I, I think it's I think it's really hard. I, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a simple thing like we'll just tell people to stop being uh, uncivil. I mean, you you have to you have to push back in ways that are likely to be successful. And, and I think that's another area judges can be trained in, which is what we were talking about actually in, in the program that you're talking about, is that you're a judge and you're on the bench and you're dealing with people who are acting badly in front of you. You know, how do you, how do you manage that? How do you handle your own response? How do you process your own emotional reaction to that? And, and I've seen judges really handle that kind of stuff poorly because they, they just, they just jump into the pool. You know, they, they, they get mad. They, you know, they yell at people and, you know, you, you, you kind of, the whole thing turns into kind of a, a, uh, a very uncivil atmosphere. And I've seen judges who handle it beautifully, you know, who deflect, who can, who can say, you know, counsel, I know that that was, I know you're, you're fighting hard for your client. I know you felt you had to say that, but it really wasn't uh, appropriate to, you know, call your, opposing counsel a liar, you know, it's just, there, there's just ways you can, you can do it that, that are more measured than others. And I think that's a skill. It's, it's not just a, a generalization I'm making. I think they're actually skills you can learn. It is a skill. And it also judges, I think, can be very helpful. And it may be that new technology can be helpful in this. And, you know, I think judges doing presentations in which they talk about what they value in the courtroom, not about individual cases, not about court issues, not about any of the things that would cause any question of bias or prejudice, but simply what kind, what do they value inside the courtroom mm -hmm. in terms of lawyers? What is effective with them? What do they react negatively to? And it may be that, that, that the judicial officers, the judges being more willing to give those kind of interviews and talk about that uh, can be very helpful in, in providing a support uh, for lawyers who who know they should act in that way. But the honest part of this is, I think, is that uh, and I've been in too many meetings like this. When lawyers talk to clients like that, uh, clients react as, well, I want you to do is win. And yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, you, the connection with effectiveness has to be made. That's right. And, and, and judges need to be more assertive uh, in, in many ways. And this is, a, this is just another way in which I think judges can be assertive and it doesn't it doesn't um, offend any ethical restrictions. I mean, you're just saying these are the rules of engagement um, that I expect um, in in the courtroom, you know, yeah. and that I'm going to call you out if you if you violate them. Uh, you have to you have to follow up. I mean, you can't just say it and then not do anything about it. Judge Jeremy Fogel, you've been so generous with your time. You are now at I think the center of the most important issue in American law. We've always known judicial administration was important, but judicial administration has never been more important than it is now because the truth of the matter is, if there are no courts, there's no law. And saying that there's no access to a decision for five years is the rough equivalent to saying there are no courts. So being able to deal with this issue is critical for, for, for the way the American legal system functions, for its acceptance, for its future. And you were right at the center of, of dealing with this. Your experience in the Federal Judicial Center, your work now with the Berkeley Judicial Institute. We are so grateful to you for taking time to do this. And we will, uh, uh, we're very happy that you're in the position you are now to have the influence. Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to share some ideas with you. It was just 
was a was a very fast hour. 